Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Before we jump into today's episode, as always, I want to remind you that ebmedicine.net is still your one-stop shop for all of your CME needs. There are three journals for adult and pediatric emergency medicine and urgent care medicine. There is the mobile app. There is this podcast. There is the brand new clinical pathways, the interactive version of those pathways, which are published in all three of our journals. And as if that's not enough, there is the brand new laceration course, the urgent care EKG course. There is so much CME waiting for you. ebmedicine.net. Check it out today. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Today on the podcast, it is me and TR. TR, say hello. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Not excited to be back today? I I find that you continue to manipulate the production of these papers to sources that are very interesting for me, and I find this to be a very timely and fascinating topic that I think both of us have experienced a little too much of recently, and it's definitely changed our practice just from, from experiencing this and looking at how these patients come in. Yeah. I will tell you, it's no coincidence that the EB Medicine publications make us excited to talk about these topics because they're excellent. And it really is every month something interesting to read that is very pertinent to our practice. Today, we're talking about the March 2023 article in Emergency Medicine Practice, and it is titled Emergency Department Management of Infective Endocarditis Associated Stroke. So, this article, authored by Dr. Gillespie and Dr. Kreitzer, is specifically discussing the subset of patients who have a stroke as a result of infective endocarditis. But they do discuss endocarditis, non-infective strokes, and a lot of therapies that we typically use in stroke patients that are contraindicated in this subset, all in this article. It's an outstanding review with lots and lots of information. So I'm excited to jump right in, starting with a few definitions. So in the introduction of the article, they do an excellent job of defining endocarditis as being infective. And then there's also the non-infective variety or the morantic variety that are non-bacterial. And that is not the subset of patients they're discussing in the article. Specifically, they're focused on the bacterial endocarditis because the ones who are non-bacterial who go on to have strokes are treated like typical stroke patients and can still get thrombolytics and endovascular intervention. The infectious endocarditis patients who develop stroke cannot get thrombolytic therapy. And we'll get into the why here pretty soon, but that makes a big branch point for these patients because that's kind of primary decision-making in most emergency departments. So we'll dive into right now, starting with the fact that compared to non-infective stroke, large vessel occlusion stroke caused by the septic emboli from someone who has infectious endocarditis have a much poorer functional outcome. In cohorts that are similarly matched, the article says 20% versus 43% have a poorer functional outcome. So double the risk of a bad outcome in someone who has infectious endocarditis with a four and a half time increase in the probability of death. That is absolutely terrible. So as a disease process that doubles your risk for a bad outcome and 
almost quintuples your risk for death. This is certainly something you want to diagnose early and intervene on early, if at all possible. In the United States, hospitalizations for IV drug use-associated infective endocarditis have increased from 7 to 12%, and that's just from 2000 to 2013. So that's over a decade-old data. But the best we have at this point and is still increasing, I'm sure. So definitely something that is a disease process that we're liable to run into in the emergency department and something that has, unfortunately, some pretty terrible outcomes. I found this interesting. They quoted the annual incidence of 3 to 10 cases per 100,000 patients per year. So I went and looked at and to see kind of what is the actual incidence of strokes per 100,000 patients per year. You're looking at about 150 strokes per 100,000 people per year. Of that, maybe 98 to 100 are ischemic and then maybe 48 are hemorrhagic. So you're looking at 3 to 10 versus 150. That's what it feels like is these are really the rare cases. It's something that I'm more afraid of but still concerned that I'm not really going to see it very frequently at all because these are very rare strokes when compared to our kind of bread and butter hemorrhagic or ischemic strokes. Yes, and thankfully so, because the article notes that the American Heart Association guidelines from 2019 really have very little, if any, guidance about infectious endocarditis-associated stroke as opposed to just typical ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. And that's because there just really is a paucity of data. It's not a very common occurrence. And most of the information we have on strokes comes from the ischemic variety that's non-infectious, not embolic. And the information doesn't really translate to the infectious variety. But interestingly, the etiology for this kind of infection in the heart used to be just rheumatic fever. That used to be your primary risk factor. And with the improvement in treatment and in the antibiotic era, that's actually not a very common disease that we see anymore. What we're seeing now are an increased number of cases in people with things like prosthetic heart valves, patients who have indwelling lines or catheters or getting continuous venipunctures on hemodialysis, getting other kinds of instrumentation or procedures performed. And so it's actually becoming more of that kind of regular outpatient population that we treat for chronic illnesses and less specific to people with rheumatic fever. And I would say that we'd be remiss to not highlight the fact that IV drug use is also a major driver of this becoming a more and more common disease. Absolutely. Interestingly as well, people who have endocarditis who are frequent healthcare utilizers have increased risk as well. They're about 25% of this infective endocarditis population, and they're considered the healthcare-acquired endocarditis, which carries an even higher mortality risk compared to those who have community-acquired infection. And this is for people who contract the disease and develop left-sided heart vegetations compared with right-sided heart vegetations. Those people are also at higher risk of embolization. Specifically, when you have vegetations on your heart valves that are larger than 10 millimeters in size, that's the critical number we're looking at. That's when your risk for embolization becomes high and intervention becomes necessary. Some of the other epidemiological data has revealed that Staph aureus is the most common bacteria involved in infective endocarditis. And even then, although it's the most common, that makes up about 31% of the bucket for these kinds of infections. Unfortunately, it's also the one that has the highest risk of complications and the most severity of disease. So it is definitely the one that we see the most of and the one that causes the most problems. 
The pathophysiology for infection includes things like initial injury to the heart valve, which causes formation of a clot, and then a bacterium seeding that area and turning it into an infected vegetation, which was previously sterile. And that can happen, like we mentioned before, from medical procedures. It can happen from any kind of injury to the valve. It can happen from congenital abnormalities. It can happen in really anything that injures or reduces the normal architecture of that cardiac valve leaflet, allowing a pristine environment for bacteria to set in. And unfortunately, staff definitely likes to take advantage of that. I found this interesting from just the pathophysiology standpoint, because it gave me that hope that, hey, you know, maybe there's a biochemical pathway here where we can inhibit some of this platelet aggregation, some of the cascades, the inflammatory cascades they set off. And then just the next page, they address this, that They've looked at a lot of studies for this and antiplatelet agents have not been shown to be beneficial, probably because, as we're going to talk about, the rate of hemorrhagic complications and just the fact that you're seeding bacteria through your body, when you use those antiplatelet agents, you start running into other complications like in your brain. And, and there's a lot of things that both you don't get immediate benefit and you start running higher risks whenever you start doing any kind of interference with the coagulation cascade in these patients. Yeah, and that's the biggest problem with this particular subset of patients is that's our primary therapy for people who have ischemic stroke and have some kind of vegetation or need anticoagulation. We're constantly reaching for antiplatelet medications, and unfortunately, these people have a higher risk of hemorrhagic conversion. Mm -hmm. In addition, just the presence of endocarditis and the possibility of this being a septic embolus is a contraindication to thrombolysis, which is something we do routinely, especially working in a stroke center. And so if you're not thinking about that every time that you see a patient who is a thrombolytic candidate, you might be giving someone thrombolytics who actually has infective endocarditis and their risk for hemorrhagic conversion is already quite high spontaneously. And now we're going to make it a whole lot worse. Not surprisingly, Left-sided lesions of the heart are the ones that cause the embolic strokes, and right-sided lesions don't usually result in as much morbidity or mortality unless the patient has a patent foramen ovale. And so those are the people who are typically treated with antibiotics and improve. Unfortunately, the left-sided heart vegetations tend to be more complex, and those are usually the ones presenting with strokes. Speaking of stroke, it's actually the most common neurologic complication for someone with infective endocarditis. About 17% of patients who have infectious endocarditis end up having a stroke. In a multicenter prospective study that was cited in the article, 55% of patients experienced a neurologic complication of some kind from their infective endocarditis, and 74% of those were ischemic strokes. And 90%, more than 90%, we're in the middle cerebral artery. And so if you are at a comprehensive stroke center where people like to do endovascular thrombectomies and we're constantly looking for middle cerebral artery strokes or having those patients transferred to us, this is something that needs to be on your radar because the evidence that we have for that kind of intervention comes primarily from people with non-infectious causes for their stroke. And we have to remember that this particular subset of patients is at such a higher risk of bad outcomes and hemorrhage that especially TPA, but maybe even some of these advanced endovascular therapies might cause a worsening of their disease process. We'll get into that here in just a second. I think I found that just that next point so 
humbling because I think that I had thought of infectious endocarditis associated stroke as a much more rare thing than it was. But when they did the MRIs of the 109 patients who had endocarditis, 71.5% of them had findings on their MRI. And honestly, that makes sense because once you've got the endocarditis, it's going to start seeding everywhere and your brain is probably the most delicate place for it to, to hit. And it made me want to be more aggressive about chasing blood cultures and considering starting antibiotics early because I think now I'm more inclined to fire some ceftriaxone and some vancomycin at these patients than I think I would have been before because I'm more worried about staph aureus than anything else coming from this. And now I'm more worried about protecting their brain as much as I am worried about protecting their valves and their heart. Yeah, it's a stunning number. 71% of people had intracranial abnormalities of some type that weren't seen on CT. So this is just screening MRI in a patient who was admitted to the hospital for ischemic stroke. And then more than a third of them had multiple areas seen in their brain that were affected. It's just another statistic that shows you that this disease process can go unrecognized for a while until the patient has some kind of catastrophic neurological finding that results in them coming to the ER as an acute stroke. But they may have actually had asymptomatic smaller strokes for quite some time that have been embolizing their brain. And on the topic of hemorrhagic complications, intracranial hemorrhage is common in the setting of infective endocarditis in about 27% of patients will develop some kind of intracranial hemorrhage. But again, like we mentioned before, certain types of bacteria like staphylococcus, beta-hemolytic strep, and the viridans group of strep carry a higher risk of what they call microbleeds or small bleeds that we usually see on MRI and some of the larger intracranial hemorrhage. So 27%, almost a third of patients are going to have a hemorrhage. And if you're in that staph or strep group, that definitely gives you a higher risk for it. In general, the pathophysiology for the intracranial hemorrhage is believed to be secondary to hemorrhagic conversion of a previous ischemic stroke, but the vasculature, the actual walls of the blood vessels become friable and then eventually rupture, and they're predisposed to aneurysm formation. And so on some of those screening tests like the CTAs, the CT angiographies, or the MR angiographies, we may actually see aneurysms in these patients, we may see multiple aneurysms in these patients. And those can go on to rupture. And that brings up another problem for the neurosurgical colleagues who are trying to intervene on these aneurysms because they'll typically go in there and coil them. They've got a bunch of things at their disposal to do for a normal aneurysm. But if you've got one with specifically friable walls because it's infectious in etiology, that also increases their risk for intracranial hemorrhage. And so, again, just brings up the point that it's very important to make that diagnosis early and not delay care. There are some studies that have shown an improvement in the aneurysms from just antibiotic use, and then there are some that suggest that there's an increase in intracranial hemorrhage when there's attempts at neurosurgical repair. So antibiotics, antibiotics, and more antibiotics, and as you mentioned, ceftriaxone and vancomycin are typically the ones we'll start because we're looking at those gram-positive culprits, the high-risk ones, staph and strep and the viridans group. I found one piece of this reassuring that basically patients that have a super therapeutic INR are going to be higher risk for bleeding. So I did feel like once the bleeding has started, I think you can start to reach for those reversal agents like you would otherwise. I think it's worth consideration of all the aspects of what kind of valve they have, if it's a, a valve replacement or something else. 
but I still think that as opposed to now my hesitation with wanting to give any kind of lytics for a stroke, I felt better about still being in a good position that it was probably safer for the patient to reverse them opposed to leaving them anticoagulated while they were bleeding. Yeah, and this brings up yet another one of the conundrums with these patients is that if they have a prosthetic valve already because they've had some manipulation of the heart and then that becomes infected, they're usually already on anticoagulation. And then now you're in this rock and hard place scenario where you've got to decide, is it detrimental to stop their anticoagulation because they have a prosthetic valve versus the much increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage alone from the infection now being made worse by the fact that they're on anticoagulants? It's definitely a case-by-case scenario and something that's going to be reached with consultation with multiple specialists. It's a very, very complicated scenario. And unfortunately, there isn't a good answer. They're at just a disastrously high level of risk for intracranial hemorrhage, regardless of what you do in this scenario. And you're just trying to prevent further complication and hope that the antibiotics may improve their outcome if you can just stall long enough with treatment. We mentioned aneurysms, so patients who do have infectious endocarditis and stroke are at increased risk for intracranial aneurysms, and the etiology is thought to be infectious invasion into the walls of the arteries causing aneurysm formation, and again, most commonly affects the distal branches of the middle cerebral artery, which is the area we're looking at when we have some of those large vessel ischemic strokes that we're treating at most stroke centers. I wasn't ready for your middle cerebral artery to be the right lower lobe of the brain, but I find that that does appear to be how it is. And now I'm going to look a little more suspiciously at middle cerebral artery occlusions, just like I do right lower lobe pneumonias as, is this an aspiration? Do I need to change my treatment management for this? Or am I sure that this is just a normal ischemic stroke? Right. Right. It really does make me appreciate some of that complex decision-making or neurosurgical or IR colleagues are doing when we've got somebody with an MCA occlusion. As we mentioned before, if you do have intracranial aneurysm formation from the invasion of bacteria into the walls of your intracranial arteries, you are at risk for rupture of that aneurysm. The data that we currently have says it's somewhere between 2 and 4% for spontaneous rupture. But if you do have that spontaneous rupture, the mortality is as high as 80%. That's catastrophic. Interestingly, unruptured aneurysms can be seen in about 32% or a third of patients with infectious endocarditis. So again, just bringing up the importance of that screening, and they may resolve with just antibiotic therapy. So that follow-up becomes critical. Although you may want to go and intercede and do something, it may actually be better for the patient to do nothing and just give the antibiotics and see if these things will spontaneously go away which would be a far better scenario than having to thread a wire or a catheter or a coil into a very friable intracranial aneurysm. Let's talk about differential diagnosis. We're in the ED. We're seeing somebody who we suspect might have an infectious etiology for their neurological deficits. The most important things to also keep on the differential would be things like brain abscesses, other infectious etiologies like meningitis and encephalitis and all those other infectious things that can cause an alteration in your mental status and give you an abnormal neurological exam. Brain abscesses in specific can mimic ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. And for people who have infectious endocarditis, anywhere from 1% to 7% can have those. So 
it's not an unheard of complication. And unfortunately, it's something that's picked up usually on MRI because CT is not very good at detecting them. Also important to keep in mind are other areas of infection. So things like spinal lesions, things like epidural abscesses, things like discitis and osteomyelitis. If the infection is already set into your heart, it's going to be everywhere. It's arterially being spread. If you already have an ischemic stroke from this, it's very likely that you've embolized elsewhere as well. And so it just drives home the point that you need to be searching for infections in multiple locations. And consultation with our infectious disease colleagues is usually very helpful. They're very good at helping us detect all of those other areas of concern. I think this also pushed me to be a little quicker about lumbar puncture in these people. Because if they've got the fever and the stroke-like symptoms, and let's say their imaging doesn't look too bad and there's nothing to do, I do think that the LP is going to guide a little more quickly the antibiotic therapy than the blood cultures would, because I think you're going to get a clearer picture faster from that. And I think that's something that for me, if I've gotten through the imaging and I've gotten my labs and everything, and I still suspect that this could be infectious endocarditis, I think I'd be more inclined to do the LP as soon as I could, because I think that gram stain and those results are really going to drive you to the correct diagnosis sooner. And like you said, make sure that you're treating so that we don't get to some of these further down the line complications. Absolutely. When we talk about the pre-hospital care for the patient, it is very similar to just any stroke or suspected stroke. You're looking at checking a glucose, checking vital signs, obtaining any history from bystanders or family, anything about their medical history that may be helpful. If you know or if you discern from a family member that this patient has a history, even a previous history of infectious endocarditis, and you are the transporting personnel, that is a critical piece of information to relay to the hospital so that they're aware that this patient has a prior history because it's not just active infection. There is a higher risk of recurrence, and that may be what's causing the embolic stroke in this case, which would be a very, very important detail to mention to the person that you engage at the hospital when you're dropping off the patient. Yep. And if you're in the emergency department and you're trying to get a history, table one here on page seven of the article lists the key elements of infective endocarditis associated with stroke, including things like the key historical elements. So knowing if the patient is immunocompromised, certainly knowing if they're an IV drug user, knowing if they have prior episodes of endocarditis or if they have an active or primary malignancy. On your exam, you'll see this as well, but being told if they have indwelling lines or catheters, recent pacemaker placement, any kind of surgical intervention, knowing their cardiac valve history, do they have valve replacements or have they had valvuloplasty or any other kind of valvular intervention, and then asking about the typical screening questions that we ask for stroke. So you're still going to ask all of those. What was your last known well time? What was the time of onset? Are you on anticoagulants? You're still going to ask all of those, but you should also be asking about some of these key things that might indicate that it's an endocarditis etiology. I feel like now my form for these patients is a little different yeah. because instead of just going through my usual NIH, now I'm going to basically have the center exam and the extremity exam where I'm going to go, okay, let's look at their chest. Is there a midline scar? Is there a pacer? Is there a port? What does their dialysis access look like? Oh, there it is. Oh, now I'm more worried about that. Now I'm looking at fingers and toes and nails and hands. And it's just going to add, you know, maybe another 30 seconds to my exam. But that's all it's going to take to be like, oh, what are those lesions on the fingers? Oh, 
what's that midline scar that they have? Or, oh, do they have track marks that, that EMS didn't appreciate because they just kind of picked them up and didn't manage to get their sleeves rolled up or notice that that was there? I think it's one more thing that quickly on my stroke exams, within just another 30 seconds, I can say, oh, wait, this is not my usual stroke. Yeah, and depending on the flow of your patients when they have an acute ischemic stroke, for example, at our institution, they're coming in and we're doing a cursory NIH before they get shipped off to advanced neuroimaging, and we're trying to get all that done very, very rapidly. So we're often asked to do a kind of a preliminary neuro examination and then have to come back and finish it afterwards, and it becomes more important to pick up these findings on that secondary exam in the patient who you're considering giving TPA. That is the critical time when you need to go back and do that head-to-toe exam and look at figure one, which does a great job describing Roth spots in the eyes, Osler's nodes on the hands and the arms, Janeway lesions of the skin that might be present on the palms and the soles, and those little splinter hemorrhages of the fingernails. All of these findings might alert you that this patient has infectious endocarditis as an underlying cause, and it might be time to pump the brakes on TPA for a moment. Look for those IV drug use marks, look for that sternotomy, listen to the heart sounds, and see if they have a murmur. It might be one of those few times where a physical examination is still actually relevant as opposed to some advanced imaging because it will add a little bit more information that would be very, very relevant to the patient in this scenario. So when it comes to laboratory analysis, this is kind of everything in the kitchen sink. We're not really looking to save any money here. The most important thing being blood cultures. So if you suspect infectious endocarditis, you're looking at three sets of blood cultures instead of the normal two sets. That's really the only important thing to note when it comes to laboratory evaluation. EKG, everybody who's having some kind of ischemic stroke typically gets one. But in people with infectious endocarditis, you might see evidence for a heart block, which is one of those hallmarks of something terrible going on and that you may need to obtain an echo faster than usual if you're worried that they're now having problems perfusing their AV node or their SA node. This is going to become catastrophic very quickly. They made a good case for the point of care ultrasound. And I think that there's definitely value there to take a look and see how their heart looks, see how their EF is, see if you can see any vegetations. But for me, this made me want to push more in these patients for an official echo sooner, because if I can see those vegetations and I'm on the fence about, are we going to go to do one thing or another? Are we going to give lytics or not? I think that's really going to help you make better decisions if you can see that there's something there. It's not going to answer all your questions, but I definitely think it can help confirm that diagnosis while you're waiting for your blood cultures or your lumbar puncture or, or something else to kind of give you that other thing that tips it over the edge and say, all right, I think this is infectious endocarditis. Yeah, and that's a very good point. We do use point-of-care ultrasound for a lot of things. Determining whether or not they have vegetations or infectious endocarditis may be one of those exceptions. Depending on your comfort level with ultrasound and your skill level, most of the point-of-care ultrasound courses aren't giving you the training you need specifically to look for valvular vegetations. We're looking for things like ejection fraction, gross abnormalities. The subtleties of valvular vegetations can be very, very difficult. So even if you don't see it on your point of care ultrasound, you still need to go forward with a formal transthoracic or even transesophageal echo. Your patients may progress through all of those while they're in the hospital 
because it's just so difficult to pick up some of those subtle changes on the valves. And it's a very, very important differentiator. I also think having come from the rural places in America, I found that this is one of my drivers for disposition. I had one patient where every day for a week, I called her and said, you have positive blood cultures, like multiple positive blood cultures. Like you have bacteremia. I'm worried you have endocarditis. I know you have a history of drug use. Like you need to come to the hospital. I need to give you antibiotics and we need to get this figured out. And every day she would say, I'll be there in an hour. And then the next day we'd have the same conversation again. And it took me a week to get her back into the hospital. And then we had to really convince her that she needed to be transferred up to a higher level of care to get an official echo, maybe to get a transesophageal echo because you can't always see, see these well from a transthoracic echo. And I think in a young person, it is worth having those battles and it is worth getting that figured out as soon as you can because until you know what the bacteria is and how extensive this endocarditis is, especially after having read this, all of the complications that can develop, the loss of health and quality years and functional outcomes is so great that it is worth fighting as hard as you can in these patients to get them as much investigation as you can and the fastest, best antibiotic treatment that's tailored to what they have grown. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's a very difficult population, that subset of population who are IV drug users, because they're also candidates for things like opioid use disorder treatment. And you know that they have other things that are preventing them from coming to the hospital and you're trying to circumvent that and stress the importance of what's actually going on with them now and that they may die. And like you said, typically over the phone or that initial conversation, they're very receptive to it and then you get a no-show. But that persistence is very, very important. When it comes to neuroimaging, you're going to do your standard stroke imaging. So they're getting that non-con head CT to look for a hemorrhage. If you're at a center that can do a CT angiography, you're going to obtain one of those as well. And you might see some of those aneurysms we talked about. And then MRI is going to be the best at detecting either some of those small ischemic infarcts that you can't see on CT or some of those infectious lesions or some of those smaller aneurysms. You're going to pick up on all of those with MRI, MRA. At some point, they will get that testing done in the hospital, but usually that's less available in the emergency department. And then comes therapies. So what can you do for someone with infectious endocarditis-associated stroke? Well, we've already established that you cannot give them TPA and that despite your best efforts and wants, if they have something like associated AFib or valvular disease or some other reason to be anticoagulated, these patients are at much, much higher risk for intracranial hemorrhage. And so fighting that urge to anticoagulate is very, very important unless you've got a multidisciplinary team that has already decided that their risk from not anticoagulation overrides or is far higher than their risk from anticoagulation and hemorrhagic conversion, which is, is a very important discussion to have, but that really is a multi-specialty discussion. Now, there is data, of course, in the ischemic stroke that's not infectious-related that thrombectomy can be beneficial and produces better outcomes in patients in that zero to 24 hour window. Again, that data is not specific to patients who have infectious endocarditis associated stroke. So this is another one of those conversations you have to have with your neurosurgical colleagues. In some case reports, there have been descriptions of patients who have improved, but there haven't been any blinded placebo controlled trials or even large trials or even large case series of patients who have had this procedure performed on them 
in the setting of infectious endocarditis. And so it just brings up another reason to consult early and to make sure you're having that conversation with your neurosurgical colleagues and to make sure that everyone's aware that this is an infectious endocarditis patient and not your standard stroke patient. And I think having said that, when you're looking at where this patient's going to end up, as you said, like it's a multidisciplinary decision, you're looking at if you're trying to transfer this patient to another facility, they're going to need cardiothoracic surgery, at least to be able to consult and look at that echo and see. They're going to need interventional neurosurgery, infectious disease. So I think that if you're choosing between facilities, making sure that they have all three of those capabilities is going to be the biggest thing because they're going to need an echo. And if they've had a stroke, they're going to need MRIs. And then depending on if this keeps progressing, they're going to need treatment either in their chest or in their head. So making sure that you have them hop once and not twice is a pretty important decision. Yeah, that's a great point. It is going to be some kind of tertiary referral center, really, that you're looking for. Antibiotic therapy, we mentioned before, this is something you can start in the emergency department, typically ceftriaxone and vancomycin. And then after a consultation with infectious disease, maybe obtaining some information from blood cultures, it can be tailored specific to the organism. There are other regimens available, things like cefepime and daptomycin and rifampin and gentamicin, but really all of this comes with consultation with your infectious disease colleagues. And so ceftriaxone and vancomycin will cover those most common suspects, staph and strep and the viridans family. And so that's likely a good starting point for most patients. In my head, I like ceftriaxone two grams and then vancomycin 20 megs per kilo because that just seemed like a very reasonable and standard approach that I could memorize with the only caveat being if they said, you know, this was a horrible pseudomonal infection and it was a pseudomonal associated infection of his line and now we've got a stroke, what could this be? Then I might be thinking cefepime or zosin, something that's going to be like an anti-pseudomonal antibacterial for, for a case like that where we knew pseudomonas was already involved. Yeah. And then the surgical treatment. So this is the cardiothoracic vejectomy, which is removal of the vegetation from the heart valve, is something that is done, but the timing of it is a little debatable. If they're critically ill, critically unstable, it might be a case where IV antibiotics are recommended as the patient is being monitored in an intensive care unit until optimal timing is achieved for cardiothoracic intervention. Regardless, removing those vegetations and debriding all of that infected tissue is important. And then there are the catastrophic surgical cases where the infection has spread beyond just a valve leaflet, perhaps into the anchor of the valve, perhaps forming fistulous tracts, maybe even affecting their internal pacemaker. And so they're definitely very, very sick patients that require a lot of care. And cardiothoracic surgery is typically performed, but the timing again just depends on the stability of the patient. But again, I think infectious endocarditis was something that I thought, okay, a lot of this is just antibiotics and caution and further investigation, but half of these patients need surgery to resolve the issue. That is much higher than I thought it was going into this paper. It definitely gives you an appreciation for having cardiothoracic surgery around to, to weigh in on these patients. And we mentioned before, but We've got some special populations, right? We used to think of this as a rheumatic heart disease problem, but now we're specifically screening people for obviously IV drug use, immunosuppression of any kind, if they're a transplant patient, if they have 
lupus or rheumatoid arthritis and they take chronic immunosuppressants, that's an important historical detail. If they have end-stage renal disease and are just on hemodialysis, that's a skin puncture on a routine basis and an exchange of blood through a machine that's an excellent source. If they have known valvular disease or a prosthetic valve, those are both risk factors as well. And then if they have HIV and they've been non-compliant with their medications, that's another risk factor. And also, one we didn't talk about was the pediatric population. So there are those who are born with congenital heart defects that go on to have surgical repair, and they also have a higher incidence of infectious endocarditis as well. So something else to ask your patients who are presenting with fever when you're evaluating them in the emergency department. There was also mention of connective tissue disorders, so people with things like Marfan syndrome are more liable to have things like mitral valve prolapse and other cardiac-related abnormalities. So one last thing to ask someone on the screening questionnaire and one more special population to keep in mind. The article does a great job at the very end talking about controversies and cutting-edge technology, and they did kind of a deep dive in the literature for endovascular intervention for these patients. I mentioned before there's been a series of cases the authors did a good job reviewing all 30 of these case reports, and they noted that patients who did have infective endocarditis and were treated with endovascular therapy had a decrease in their NIH stroke scale from 15 before treatment to two and a half after treatment. It's a pretty significant improvement, but the risk for intracranial hemorrhage was high. It was 13%, and their 90-day mortality was 23%, which is very high. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that it was caused by the endovascular intervention, but just gives you an appreciation for how critically sick these patients can be and their increased risk of mortality, regardless of what you're going to do with them. So we don't have any good randomized control data. It's definitely a conversation to have with the neurosurgical colleagues, and it is a multi-specialty treatment protocol for these patients when they're being admitted to the hospital. I really like the point that they ended on, though, which is that you need to always consider both at the beginning and the end for this patient. If there is a problem with substance abuse, they need access to treatment, both psychosocial treatment and therapy and access to medications to help prevent them from relapsing. I found a fascinating new partner in this area is the Cardiothoracic Surgeons of America because they find that they can only do one or two valves like this. And if these people relapse and they get endocarditis again, you can't do valves an unlimited number of times. You can't go in and take that out and put another one in. You run out of tissue. And I think that it's it's just something that, especially now in the era where the X waiver is gone and we're going to be more free to, to try to get more people access to medicines like buprenorphine and Suboxone, I think that this is a great patient to remember that in. Even if you see them later in the emergency department for now having resolved their endocarditis, but they're starting to relapse and have issues, I think this is someone that I'm going to be even more inclined to make sure that if they want access to it, that I, I get them started on the right path. Yes. And in this population, it's early access. So you don't have to wait till they've finished their treatment in the hospital to have this conversation. In fact, even having it in the ED, as you tell them they're being admitted, is a great time to have this conversation because you can start that therapy, hopefully prevent the withdrawals and the need for the patient to feel like they have to leave the hospital immediately. And I think that's going to increase your compliance with treatment and, and hopefully really cause a lasting change for the patient in a positive way. 
I really love going through the five things that change your practice. But for me, a stroke plus a fever is just a great point to stop and say, wait a minute like that. There's a lot of nuance to this, but just like chest pain plus neurosymptoms is now more of a dissection. And I stop and say, wait, I really want to make sure I see my CT imaging and I want to make sure I get that full view of the chest. I think here, a fever and a stroke, I'm going to be much more inclined to be cautious about lytics and make sure that I'm doing as much as I can to figure that out. Since you mentioned it, five things that will change your practice. This is that section that's at the end of the article. It's actually at the end of every article for this particular topic. Number one, neurologic findings other than ischemic stroke like bacterial meningitis, intracranial hemorrhage, or brain abscess are common in patients with infective endocarditis. Number two, patients who have infective endocarditis-associated stroke are not candidates for thrombolysis, which we already talked about, systemic thrombolysis but they could be candidates for mechanical thrombectomy. Number three, infective endocarditis should be on the differential for patients who present with ischemic stroke symptoms and have underlying immunocompromised state, IV drug use, or previous cardiac valvular abnormalities. Number four, early initiation of antibiotic coverage is critical in these patients in order to reduce morbidity or mortality. And as you mentioned, number five, Emergency clinicians may identify patients in the ED with a history of IV drug use who are at risk for infectious endocarditis. These encounters can provide a critical opportunity to refer patients to evidence-based treatment for opiate use disorder. So keep those five things in mind. Can I turn one plug for the authors? Do it. I loved their immediate transition from infectious endocarditis-associated stroke to the acronym IEAS. I thought it was clean. I thought it looked nice. I like saying it. I just really appreciate when people focus on a topic and have a good acronym for it. That just, it's like a great clinical trial with a great name. I'm like, good job, you. Nice, IEAS. And thanks again to Drs. Gillespie and Dr. Kreitzer for authoring this fantastic review on infective endocarditis-associated stroke. And thanks to you, TR. Thanks again for having me. That was another great article. Until next time, everybody, be safe. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Until next time, I really want you to go check out ebmedicine.net, and I would love if you would give us a rating in whatever podcast store you're listening in today. We really appreciate that kind of support. Until next time, be safe, everyone. Be safe, everyone.